chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We mentioned earlier that um, today we are going to look at the beauty and message of marriage on this Stand for Marriage Sunday. And um, we live in a day that there is um, much confusion about God's design, um, much willful ignorance, and Lord willing, today we want to look at what God's Word says in this regard. Notice Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This is a description of the days of creation. We are looking at the sixth day, beginning at verse 26. And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we truly ask that you would help us to see your heart today. Help us to understand your ways And Lord, I pray that we would respond as you desire us to today. Lord, uh, I just plead your mercies today to do the ministering uh, through your Spirit as we look to you now in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. When in the current culture that we are in today, the fundamental issue is boiled down to whether we are designed by God or whether we are the product of billions of years of incidental, accidental evolution with no design at all. The predominant secular culture propagates the latter. And since there is no design according to their Um, statement and belief, Um, it really is left up to human nature to decide and to suit whatever pleases one's own pleasure. If there was ever a day that we needed to hear, thus saith the Lord, it is today. It doesn't matter what my opinion is. It doesn't matter what your opinion is. It doesn't matter what anybody's opinion is. It matters what God says. Because God is the governor of nations. God is the author of all laws of nature. God is the one that um, brings the blessings of obedience and the judgments of disobedience, and the beauty of it is that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Now, let me let me just say, you may be sitting here today thinking um, this is primarily a message about homosexuality. No, this is primarily a message about God's design for marriage which involves way more than that one little topic. And it is important that we understand that we have traveled as a society down a road and um, we have come to various areas where we've taken wrong turns. Um, Unfortunately, I saw in the news that... um, a young man this last week drove off where a bridge had been replaced and perished in that. 
I liken our culture unto we took a wrong turn down a road that has the bridge out. Not only have we taken a wrong turn and we're traveling down that road, we have gone and there were warning signs that said, Bridge out! Danger! Dead end! Stop! Turn around! And we've gone and taken those signs down. And not only have we taken those signs down, we've taken the barricades down that hindered anyone from going through and plunging into death. And we've all done that in the name of love. It is love that does not tell them, no, this is dangerous. This is going to end in a bad situation. The good part about it is that the Bible is like an owner's manual or an operation manual for life. The more we align our beliefs and our values and our passions and our actions with God's design, the more we will understand the joy, the peace, the security that He designed us to have in this life. But the more we neglect it, the more we will bear the consequences of our decisions. It is amazing, when you get in and look at, at God's design for marriage, the Bible opens... With the marriage, we read in Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, and we're not going to take the time to, to read the, the remainder when God created woman out of Adam's rib and so on. But the Bible opens with that, and um, when He created the woman to be Adam's helpmeet, He said, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed, the Bible tells us. So the Bible begins by dealing with marriage, and the Bible closes with a wedding between a groom and a bride that we'll talk about here in a little bit. And marriage is honored and extolled in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Marriage is the first institution that God ordained. Before government was ordained, before the church was ordained, it is the foundation of society. It's interesting, three of the Ten Commandments reflect directly on God's understanding of the family. Commandment number five says, children, obey your father and mother. Commandment number seven says, thou shalt not commit adultery. Commandment number ten says, amongst other things, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Throughout the Scripture, God places a high and holy calling on marriage. And God designed marriage as an object lesson of several divine relationships. God, throughout Scriptures, uses various illustrations to let us know His heart, let us know His nature. And marriage is one of the things that He uses to convey to us um, His relationship. First of all, it's a picture of God's relationship with Israel. Um, again, there is so much material here that we don't have time to go into it, but in God choosing Israel and God's commitment to Israel... 
and God fulfilling the promises to Israel. He uses marriage throughout it. He raised up prophets to speak to Israel and say, You have been a spouse to me. You have been married to me. And you have been unfaithful to me. But I will win you back. The book of Hosea clearly spells this out. It's a picture of God's relationship to Israel. It's also a picture of God's redemption of mankind. In a Jewish wedding, the prospective bridegroom took the initiative and traveled from his father's house to the home of the prospective bride. The father of the woman then negotiated the prospective bridegroom the price that must be paid to purchase his bride. And when the bridegroom paid the price, the marriage covenant was established. At that point, the man and the woman were regarded as a husband and wife, even though no physical union had taken place. The moment that covenant was established, the bride was declared to be set apart exclusively for the groom. The groom and the bride would then drink of a cup over which a betrothal benediction was spoken, and it symbolized that the covenant was established. After the marriage covenant was in effect, the groom left the home of the bride and returned to his father's house, and he would remain there for a period um, close to 12 months or so, separated from his bride. During this period of separation, the bride gathered her wardrobe, prepared for married life, and the groom prepared living accommodations for his future bride. After the period of separation... The groom, the best man, and the other male escorts left the house of the groom's father, usually at night, and conducted a torchlight procession to the house of the bride. The bride was expecting her groom to come to her. However, she never knew the exact hour that he would come. Thus the groom's arrival was preceded by a shout. The groom would shout, would go and receive the bride with her female attendants and return to his father's house. The bride and groom would enter into the bridal chamber and in the privacy would consummate their marriage. Do you notice any symbolisms there regarding Christ's coming? He left his father's house. He negotiated the price for our purchase, the blood of Jesus Christ. We are covenanted together with him. It is sealed over the cup. He then left and went to his father's house and The bride knows not the day or the hour that he's coming again, but it is preceded by a shout. God designed marriage to be a picture. This is just one little glimpse, a picture of God's redemption of mankind. And it will be consummated as... The marriage of the Lamb takes place in heaven. The marriage of of Christ takes place to the bride of Christ, which is the church of Christ, made up of, of we as believers. Marriage is also used to represent Christ's relationship to believers. Read Ephesians chapter 5, and he says that men are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And gave himself for it. He says that that wives are to love and respect their husbands as the church does to Christ. Marriage is one of God's central means of displaying His glory in this world. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 19. 
Matthew chapter 19, we find Jesus is speaking, and we want to look at Jesus' teaching on ministry. Great multitudes were following, and the Pharisees came to him, tempting him, trying to trap him. And they said, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And verse 4, He answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they two shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more two, but one What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, And shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. Now you notice Jesus is doing some teaching. Let's just, let's just point out some keys to this. In verses three and four, we see that Jesus taught that marriage is instituted by God at the, at the very beginning. Verse 4, Have you not read that He which made them at the beginning made them male and female? So, it is God, Jesus is teaching, not Old Testament. This is Jesus in the New Testament teaching. And He's referring back to the Old Testament. And He said, Have you not read that God, this is God's idea, God instituted, marriage is instituted by God at the very beginning. It's God's idea. He wrote the book on it. And then it goes on and it shows us that marriage is for a man and a woman who become one flesh. He said, at the beginning made them male and female, And he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Gender and marriage then are not incidental. They are vitally important. Gender is a part of God's original design. The difference between male and female is God's glory. God's glory is designed in how He created male. And God's glory is manifested in how He created a female. And God designed that those two should become one for His glory. One is not more important to God than the other, but God designed them differently And He designed them to become one flesh. Their difference is to God's glory. The sameness that we have is to God's glory. Their need for one another is for God's glory. The satisfaction of the man in the woman is for God's glory. The satisfaction of the woman in the man is to the glory of God. The reproduction of God through a male and a female is showing the glory of God. Living a life together as God designed as a husband and wife is to the glory of God. Whether it be in sickness, in health, whether it be for better, for worse, it is until death parts them. And that is to the glory of God. The whole one flesh relationship is to the glory of God. So Jesus is teaching that. He also teaches that marriage is a union that God joins, not the state. 
This was designed before the government even existed. This is God's design and God's purpose. And you notice, as we read earlier, there is no breaking this covenant. What God hath put together, let no man put asunder. It's, it, I find it interesting. It's almost, almost humorous. After Jesus teaches on this, the disciples, I can just picture them saying, Man, if this is the way it is, we better not get married. That was their response. If there's no out to this thing, I'm, I'm going to look several times before I jump into it. Basically, was it what the disciples were saying. But Jesus is establishing the principles of marriage that were established in Genesis and were reinforced throughout the Old Testament. And he's reinforcing them here in Matthew chapter 19. Now, we look at, okay, who designed this? Whose idea was it? What is the design of it? What is the purpose of marriage? Without, again, we could do a series on each of these points, but the purpose of marriage. Remember, God looked at Adam. Adam had named all the animals, and all these animals are coming by, and he sees a male and a female, and a male and a female, and he sees all this, and he names all the animals. And Adam has to be thinking, what's the deal here? Everything else has male and female, And God saw that it was not good that Adam should be alone. And God created out of him for a companion, for a partner. God created for him a helpmeet. One of the purposes of marriage is for partnership, for companionship. God designed Another purpose of marriage is for protection. God designed the man to, to as the, according to God's design, the stronger one, to provide protection, not just physically, but financially. But also, God uses a wife to help provide protection for the man in ways that many times we may be oblivious to, that she comes and helps complete us. And God designed it to provide protection and completion. God said it's not good that Adam be alone. And He designed that we complete each other. We, we bring different things to the table, if you please. And different gifts and different designs. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to know that male and female are designed differently. Not just physically, but in, in, in how we think, in how we act, in how we respond. It's to help complete. The purpose of marriage is also for procreation, for um, being fruitful, for having children. He said, be fruitful and multiply. So the purpose of marriage, male and female, is to that end. And the purpose of marriage, God designed it for enjoyment, for pleasure, for kindred spirits sharing a heart together. It is for for pleasure and enjoyment. Those are some of God's purposes that He gave. But we live in a world where God's designs are always under attack. And let me just quickly list for you some of the enemies of marriage. The first enemy that we'll list today is impurity or defilement. Adultery, premarital relationship, which is fornication, Uh, Incidentally, adultery and fornication are not the same. Your Bible may translate fornication as sexual immorality. That is not a proper 
translation. It is, we've, we mentioned earlier, when Joseph and Mary were betrothed to each other. Remember the account of Joseph and Mary. And it came to be known that Mary was with child. Joseph and Mary did not know each other in the sense of having physical relationships with each other. But they were considered husband and wife, according to Jewish customs. So Joseph had the thought that she has violated our covenant in the betrothal period. And he thought about putting her away. Ending this agreement because they hadn't consummated it physically. It was still in the waiting period, the what we commonly call the engagement period. And, of course, you know how that ended, but that illustrates there's a difference between adultery is that that takes place after marriage, as we understand. Fornication is that which takes place previous to marriage. One of the ways that Satan is undermining and attacking marriage is through impurity, whether it be adultery, whether it be fornication. Adultery and fornication are an abomination to God because it attacks the very nature of His design. There is another aspect that we're seeing very prevalent in our day today. And um, let me just say, as I go through this, we're, we're rushing through volumes of stuff that, um, that need to be covered, but we don't, we don't have the time. If, if I create more questions than answers here today, I'd be happy to visit with you after this, Okay. But another situation that has really become an enemy of marriage is just the delay of marriage. Anytime someone decides to marry, it is a decision to be moral, to be honorable, and we ought to celebrate that. You know what? I'm excited. Um, you've heard me say before, I'd rather do um, funerals than weddings. I'm getting, and I can explain that in some regard, but I'm getting more and more and more excited about doing weddings when they're done right. I'm excited. In the next few months, Blake and Mallory are getting married. Cole and Mariah are getting married. Sammy and Andrew are getting married. We ought to be celebrating that. We live in a world today that young people are not embracing marriage. And they're delaying marriage. Do you know the average age that a young man marriage today is in the late 20s to early 30s? I'm not saying... uh, And the young ladies, it's a little under that. I'm not saying someone should rush out and get married... But we're living like we're married without being married. We're delaying it. And it's selfishness. It's irresponsibility. It's a lack of commitment to God's ways. A lack of commitment to the purpose, to the person that we're living with. And it is totally unwise. Because it violates God's standard. You know what? As I said, I'm serious. All three of these weddings, um, we ought to be celebrating that fact. You ought to be rejoicing in that. And, and rejoicing that they are choosing to be moral, to be honorable. The marriage is honorable and the bed undefiled. But enemies of marriage, number three, it's neglect. Sad to say, um, there are many marriages today that are dying because of neglect. We are not building our relationships. We are not 
as men loving our wives as Christ loved the church, and as wives are not um, yielding to the husband as the church is to, to Christ. And we are going our separate ways, and we um, bump into each other at Grand Central Station at home, but we are not building a oneness. And we are dying. Many, many marriages are dying of neglect. I meet with these young couples and I say, marriage is not a, a, a wonderful box that you get and you pull out all these wonderful things. Marriage is an empty box that you put in your whole heart and soul and mind and you can, you can benefit from wonderful, wonderful blessings. But it's not something that you just receive from Love requires work. We think those are two opposite ends. Love is not some warm, fuzzy feeling. Love is a commitment. Love is a decision. And, and it is something that many marriages are dying because of neglect. A fourth thing that is an enemy of marriage is divorce. <clears throat> I find it interesting in in our Bible readings we've just read recently um, in Mark that John the Baptist. Do you know why John the Baptist had his head lopped off? Because he took a stand regarding divorce and remarriage. He told Herod, "It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife." That made her mad. And she said, the one thing I want is his head on a platter. And she got it. Why would John make such a big deal of that? Because John understood the heart of God regarding this picture of God's relationship to Israel and God's redemption of mankind and God's relationship, the believer's relationship, relationship to the law and the church and Christ. It's incredible. And going back and, and reading in our nation's history, our founding fathers understood this, this whole thing about marriage. Many, many state laws regarding this. But let me, let me just read. The, in the early years of our nation, uh, the early Texas Supreme Court made this statement. Marriage was not originated by human law. I mean, remember, this is the Supreme Court of Texas. This is verbatim a quote from them. You'd think it was a sermon, okay? Marriage was not originated by human law. When God created Eve, she was a wife to Adam. They then and there occupied the status of a husband to wife and wife to husband. When Noah was selected for salvation from the flood, he and his wife and their three sons and their wives were placed in the ark. And when the flood waters had subsided and the families came forth, it was Noah and his wife and each son and his wife. The truth is that civil government has grown out of marriage, which created homes and population and society from which government became necessary. Marriages will produce a home and family that will contribute to a good society, to free and just government, and to the support of Christianity. It would be sacrilegious to apply the designation a civil contract to such a marriage. It is that and more. It is a status ordained by God. When the court declared marriage was not originated by human law, they were understanding where this came from. God established marriage and the family in the creation of Genesis 1. And through it, the nation of Israel then became an independent nation Moses permitted the introduction of divorce into the nation's public policy. And if a man took a wife and married her, and it happened that she found no favor in his eyes because of some kind of indecency, 
he could write her a bill of divorcement and dissolve the marriage. Sadly, over time, divorce among the Israelites became easy and commonplace, similar in practice to the policy today known as no-fault divorce which permits the termination of marriage with no showing of wrongdoing by either spouse. Over the next thousand years, Israel increasingly turned its back on God and frequently disobeyed Him, and so God brought discipline to them. God sent them into captivity for 70 years, and after bringing them back and reestablishing them as a nation, God raised up Ezra the priest and Nehemiah the governor And he spoke through his prophet Malachi, and he made clear that he did not approve of all that they had done, especially with no-fault divorce, succinctly telling them in Malachi chapter 2.15, I hate divorce. God's position on marriage had previously been made clear, and his position on divorce was equally clear. We read 500 years after that, Jesus reaffirmed that position and um, approved and showed that God is not approved of the no-fault divorce. Our founding fathers um, shared the same view. It's incredible. John Quincy Adams said, Whether someone can love another person for life depends on their mindset. If one is willing... And will work toward that end, he can love for life. But if his heart has long been wallowing in the kennels of corruption, he will always find an excuse for why a lifelong commitment is not possible. The Bible's position on marriage and divorce remained the American policy for many, many years, up into the 1960s. Our founders long ago pointed out that when, when divorce is made easy, preserving a marriage becomes hard. When divorce is readily available for any cause, there is rarely any attempt to face or solve problems, but rather to turn and run to some other perceived green pasture. On the other hand, when there is not an easy escape route, There is an incentive to find a solution, to learn to be happy, and to remain married. Love is not a self-centered emotion, but rather a sacrificial choice to seek the highest good on behalf of someone else, empowered by God, who will readily supply the ability to live that out. We live in a day today where Christian circles embrace that which God hates. Isaiah said, Woe to them that call evil good and good evil, that put light for darkness and darkness for light. If you've been around here long enough, you know that what I've just shared has been the policy that we've sought to follow. We do not hate divorced people. Many of you here today have been divorced. I don't know. I've never yet met a divorced person that says, I think everyone ought to experience divorce. Never met anybody that said that. Everybody I know that understands, understands that God's plan is the best way. I also understand that God is able to rebuild lives. And when He rebuilds our lives, we're committed to the marriage we are then in to making it a permanent Marriage. But sad to say, you'll go far and few in Christian circles today to find this principle taught. Don't bring to me all the books of Dr. So and so that says it's okay. Show me from the Bible. Show me where it fits with the law of love of 1 John chapter 1 through 5. I tell you, we're worried about the bus going into the river. We took a wrong turn long before. We got on this dead-end street. It's not homosexuals that are destroying marriage. It's Christians throwing away God's standard of marriage. 
And then taking down the warning signs. There's another thing that is an enemy of marriage. I've already touched on it. Perversion. Marriage is between a man and a woman, and it values both individuals and all the children that that marriage produces. Cohabitation doesn't value both individuals and the children that that relationship produces. Polygamy doesn't value each individual. Incest absolutely does not value each individual. Homosexuality doesn't value both individuals and the children it produces. Have you ever thought about this? Sure, a homosexual couple can have children, either through adoption or a lesbian couple can, can have children through surrogate fathering. But it's not valuing that child. It is robbing that child of ever knowing its father. See, we don't think about all these ramifications. We hear, what's wrong with two people that love each other spending their life together? Pedophilia does not value children. Bestiality does not value the individual. Open marriage does not value it. Listen, when you remove God's barriers for marriage and God's protection for marriage, there is no limit. We live pretty sheltered lives, but open marriages and group marriages are commonplace bestiality well what happened so what i that guy loves a dog he loves him why are we to prevent that that may sound awful gross to you but this is where the bus is going when it goes off the edge when you remove god's design there is no standard Some say, well, I was born with the desires. You know what? We're all born with a lot of wrong desires. Because our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. That argument doesn't fly with the guy that's a pyromaniac. I was born with the desire that I like to burn things down. Okay. You were born with that desire, so that's okay. Does it go with the guy that said, I was born with a desire to have sex with little girls? That's my desire. In the news this last week, I don't know what to call him, but he was made a man, okay? Said, I've always been a woman inside. Read Romans chapter 1. We don't have the time to read it, but when we did, it goes back to the very beginning of what I said at the very start. The fundamental issue is whether we are designed by God or whether we are a product of billions of years of evolution with no design and no standard at all. Since we were designed by God... Every person born into this world is born as a male or female. You may have wrong desires. Some guys have a desire to have sex with every woman they see. Well, then they should be able to have it, right? See, and I'm amazed at how many Christians buy into this faulty logic. We're all born with wrong desires. That's what the message of the gospel is. We, we sang this morning, and I get more blessed out of these song services than you because I know what's coming, okay? He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. So a person is born with a very perverted mind. And he has, genuinely has those desires 
That's the message of the Gospel. He breaks the power of sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. That's you and me as sinners. And His blood availed for me. That's the message of the Gospel. Again, we're running out of time, but, but 1 Corinthians chapter 6, read that list. It says you were adulterers and, and idolaters and covetous and effeminate and lovers of mankind, homosexuals. And he says, such were some of you, but you have been washed, but you have been justified, but you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the message of the Gospel. Do we hate perversion? We hate the lies of Satan. We hate sin. Whether it be neglecting my marriage, whether it be impurity, whether it be whatever it is. But we know the only cure is Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel. When marriage is redefined and polluted or defiled by any perversion of God's design... It does damage to God's holy and divine purposes for which it was created. And it brings the judgment of God and destruction of any society. I challenge anyone to go back throughout history and study history and see any society that has embraced the perversion of God's design and you will see the rapid destruction of that society. God designed earthly marriage between a man and a woman to provide a tiny glimpse of the spectacular, true marriage. Intimacy between a man and a woman is only a minuscule glimpse of the breathtaking oneness that Jesus and the church will someday experience. Other than the cross... I can't think of any symbol in all of Scripture that is more central to the heart of God and more central to His purposes than God's design for marriage. And it is because of that that Satan is obsessed in destroying marriage. The coming together, the fitting together of two complementary halves of humanity, male and female, since they on earth mirror the image of what is fulfilled in the end of the age. And that is why we are in the battle that we are in today. It is not ultimately about earthly marriage. It's not about religious freedom. It's not about the practice of homosexuality as such. It is about the desire of Satan to decimate the picture of God's ultimate design for the world, the grand wedding of His Son and the prepared bride. That's why we must protect and defend God's design for marriage in our personal lives, in our public policy, and in our theology. The attack on marriage from neglecting it to impurity and divorce and homosexuality and other perversions from the selfishness that is displayed in our own marriages, all of those things must fiercely be resisted and defeated. The songwriter said, Rise up, O men of God, be done with lesser things. Stand for marriage. Does your marriage show the glory of God by how you fervently love each other? You know, sad to say, there are many, many young people who have grown up in a Christian home, meaning they're taken to church that have not seen a fervent love of God's design between a man and a woman, and they grow up and say, if that's what it is, I'm not sure I want any part of it. Take a stand for marriage is not out here pointing fingers at homosexuals. It begins by saying, I want to make my marriage that it brings great glory to God. And I want to encourage 
young couples that are getting married or that are married as an old fogey like me to encourage them to, to know God's best for their life. And I want to encourage marriages that are on the rocks. No, God's power can bring healing to this. And God's power can change this. Woe be, woe be if you ever have encouraged people that, ah, oh, it's not worth it. God takes this very serious. And taking a stand means I need to invest in my marriage. Am I committed for life? I tell you what, you want to see someone that's committed for life? Go visit Fred O'Dell. For better, for worse, in sickness and in health, Fred O'Dell has cared for his wife for years. And it's been a one-way street that could easily do a lesser man in. There's a picture of love right there. Are you committed for life? Are you fulfilling God's purpose for your marriage? Do others desire what you have? You know what? More important than this Supreme Court decision is that we as Christians need to come back and repent regarding our view toward marriage. Toward our own marriage. We take things for granted. It's time, not that the world wakes up. It's time that we as Christians truly stand for what we say that we believe, the Word of God, and manifest that in all our ways. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bring a renewed resolve in every one of our hearts and lives to follow your ways. And Lord, that the glorious message of the gospel would be seen in the midst of these days that may look very, very dark. But I rejoice, as we've sung earlier, the Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. That its pages burn with the truth eternal, and they glow with the light sublime. The Bible stands, though everything else changes. Lord, I pray that you would find us standing in your truth, living your truth, that the spirit of your love would fervently be manifested in our lives, and Lord, that you would bring a revival of righteousness among we as Christians, among our marriages, that we could model before this world the great love that you have for us and the great love that you can give. Lord, I pray that you truly would minister your grace in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name with thanksgiving. Amen. Let's stay.